are so grateful for the work that you, Glenn, and your church, Cornerstone, have done. I do have one question. Are these people wearing the same shirts for three days? <laughs> or do you have generous deacons or people who are washing the shirts at night or something? I just It's kind of warm. Okay. I was just wondering. I did not know. It is a great joy and privilege to be invited to speak to you all. And I'm thinking back of 19 years ago when we started talking about this and 18 years ago when some of us first met and thinking of over these last 18 years as people have been at it. Who was at a fire meeting in 1999 or in 2000? The, the remnant. But one of the great joys, it's like a reunion to come together, but the thing that moves me the most is seeing God's faithfulness to men and their ministries, their families over these years. Some have not made it all the way. But what a great blessing it is to see the faithfulness of God for our brothers and sisters through many trials, um, troubles in their church, but most of all, remaining faithful to Christ, remaining qualified for their office and their ministry. And uh, that's one of the joys of coming together, is to see uh, the faithfulness of God. As some of you, most of you are probably aware of, uh, in July, we moved away from Escondido, California after spending 29 years there, 26 years as one of the pastor elders at Grace Bible Church and gone to teach counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I can tell you it was the very hardest decision I've ever made in my entire life. I can tell you that it'll be at least five years before I know whether it was a good idea or not. Um, and yet, we did that for one basic reason, which was we believed that would be the most useful way to spend this part of our life in ministry. We did not do that because we thought counseling was more important than preaching. I think preaching is more important than counseling. They're both very important in balance. And actually, one of the blessings I have in Charlotte is I get to teach some preaching courses, too. That was what they did to sweeten the pot for me to come. But it's also been very hard because I appreciate what most of you get to do. I don't view teaching in a seminary as being a promotion. I view it as uh, being drafted <laughs> uh, to go to war or something like that. I mean, to equip others for the ministry you're doing because that's the most important ministry. And the circumstances of them starting a biblical counseling program in a seminary which had been completely integrationist in the past. And the need of someone to do this, um, it was over two and a half years we finally went through making this decision. But we feel overwhelmed. I've used the analogy, I feel like a guy that was happily playing center field on his church softball team who got called up by the Yankees. <laughs> and not only they want me to play center field, they want me to coach the team. And it's also been challenging because... Uh, not everybody likes what we're doing sometimes. And so we so much miss our church. We so much miss the normal labors of pastoral ministry, including preaching. But we also believe that uh, the Lord is going to help us. And we're exceptionally thankful for how well things are going at Grace Bible Church, which we left.
and they're flourishing. So I'm thankful for that. One of my goals in teaching in the seminary is to show how preaching and counseling are not in competition against each other, but actually complement one another. And in we've already, in Colossians 1, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So Paul says we proclaim him, and then when he says admonishing, this may be the one Greek word I use tonight, Lance will have me beat by several, nutheteo, <laughs> uh, that you get nuthetic counseling from. And I also think of Acts 20, where Paul describes his own ministry in verses 20 and 21. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's actually a couple things I would point out about that verse in Acts 20. One is that you have, again, the public and private ministry of the word alongside each other, not in competition with each other, but in biblical balance, as is the theme. I also would note, as we will come across again, in both cases, what is the theme of that ministry? It's centered in Christ. Preaching repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is talk about how counseling is balanced with preaching in the life of pastoral ministry. And we're going to have five points for some reason. I know normally sermons are supposed to be three, but we're the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. So five short points rather than three long ones. And there are going to be five questions. And the first is, well, when you say counseling, what do you mean? I think many people, when they hear the word counseling, think of therapy. They picture with a guy, like in the old days, the patient is lying on the couch, and you've got some guy smoking a pipe. And we actually dug up, by the way, some videos from the 60s of Rogers and some of the founders of psychotherapy uh, counseling this woman. And it's kind of bizarre what they're doing. And we're not doing that. It's soul care. And there are actually some Christians today, there have been articles written, maybe we should call our counseling something else because the culture is using that word for something that they're doing. There are even, in some states, government entities that question whether churches or Christians without licenses should be allowed to call what they do counseling or they should get licensed in some way. But counseling is a biblical word. And I don't want to give it up. To counsel is to simply give advice. In Exodus 18... And Moses' father-in-law said to him, now listen to me and I will give you counsel. It's something we all do all the time. Some counsel is bad. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1 says. Uh, scripture exhorts us to seek wise counsel. Uh, Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. In Psalm 32, David declares, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The Proverbs say that those who are wise listen to counsel. A man, a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Wise counsel leads to success. The counsel of a friend is sweet. And God is the perfect counselor. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, the psalmist says. And then, as Glenn has already read, The psalmist declares in Psalm 119, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. 
So the counseling in which we believe, we call it biblical counseling, that's offering people instruction from the body, from the Bible, so that people we care for, our sheep, will be complete in Christ. I want to make a couple comments about the content of that counsel before I move on to my second point. One is, I think it's significant in the passage that we all are covering. We want people to be complete in Christ. We proclaim the whole counsel of God both publicly and individually. But that counsel of God does center in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people come to you for counsel, they should get something more than what they would get from a well-meaning moralist in a Roman Catholic church or a Mormon tabernacle or temple. It should be rooted in Christ. The transformation people need is not moral change. They need a new heart that comes through union with Christ and the power of the gospel. And so someone who counsels in a way, and I, I listen to audios of people counseling constantly. And sometimes I get 50 minutes into the audio and I'll ask the person who is counseling, did you say anything in this audio that a Roman Catholic priest would have objected to? Or a Mormon elder would have found inadequate? And if you've not said anything objectionable to them, don't say you're doing biblical counseling. Likewise, if you're 30 or 40 minutes into the audio and you haven't quoted scripture, you're saying biblical things. But you're not using scripture. Don't say you're doing biblical counseling. Now, some of you are aware there was a preacher in the Atlanta area who made a big splash when he made some statement that he could preach the gospel without quoting the Bible. And people wrote blogs about it and fussed about it. Well, actually, in the biblical counseling movement, there's been a little bit of controversy in the last year where some people are saying you could do biblical counseling without reading the Bible to people. Because you're saying biblical things. I'd like to take my stance. I don't agree with that. And somebody, actually, I had a student that was practice counseling a few weeks ago in a role play setting and the counsel, person playing the counselor says just tell me what to do, tell me what to do and then the student it was like the best moment I've had in a year of teaching she said something like this is it, my words don't mean anything God's words mean everything you need to listen to him see God has better advice than I could ever give and not only that he says it better than I can the Word of God is living and active. It's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the Word that gives life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the sword, the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure. It's the Bible itself, not just things that are true in a general sense. So, what do we mean by Counseling. We mean meeting with people individually, using the Bible and a message that's centered in Christ that they might grow in sanctification to be made more Christ-like. That's what counseling is. Well, who could object to that? Some do, which is the second point. Why are so many pastors then reluctant to do this counseling? And there are many pastors who threaten, are threatened or intimidated by counseling. But actually, as I was getting ready this afternoon, and I thought about to whom I'm speaking, I am convinced there is not a denomination or association in the country more committed to biblical counseling than the room in which I now stand. It's actually pretty amazing. Uh, one of my challenges at RTS is you've got 
all these different reform denominations sending students there, and they all have kind of varying views about where psychology and counseling and all these other issues come. This is a room full of people, the leadership and most of the membership, and even just hearing the church reports, we are convinced that the first point, I'm not bringing up controversy, I'm just kind of reminding you of things you already believed. What a great place to be. But that means what I'm telling you is by reminder, but there are many pastors who are even Reformed Baptists who are unbalanced in their ministry in the sense that they are so committed to preaching they're afraid that counseling will interfere with preaching. And there was actually a booklet written, I think in the 1990s, a Reformed Baptist writing the booklet. And he says, counseling is one of the primary forces at work against the primacy of preaching. He says, counseling has in no small part contributed to the motion of preaching a redefinition of the business of the Christian minister who now transfers his energy from handling the word of God to handling people. I'm glad some of you are shuddering. Now, I understand that there's a legitimate concern that we don't want pastors to stop preaching and stop studying the Bible. But there are many pastors who don't really believe that counseling is a significant part of their calling. And actually, when you have entering seminary students in most seminaries, what they're really looking forward to doing is studying and preaching. And I understand there's a legitimate concern in Acts 6, and we need to be devoted to ministry of the Word and prayer. And so, of course, now, what is that ministry of the Word? Both public and private. Yes, we're to preach the Word, but that's not always in front of hundreds of people. But sometimes people are concerned that getting involved in people's problems will distract you from preaching. And actually, I'll admit it can if you neglect preaching and you become unbalanced in the way. Some have been actually told when they're in training in seminary or by their heroes or their mentors that if you just preach the word well enough, you won't have to do any counseling. I didn't mean it to be funny, but I'm glad you laughed. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, true preaching does deal with personal problems so that true preaching saves a great deal of time for the pastor. I'm speaking out of 40 years of experience. The preaching of the gospel from the pulpit applied by the Holy Spirit to individuals who are listening has been the means of dealing with personal problems of which I as the preacher knew nothing until such people came to me at the end of the service. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the preacher should never do personal work. Far from it. There's another reason why many pastors don't counsel, and that is because they don't feel ready or equipped to counsel. And some of this has to do with how pastors are trained. They're trained to be competent to preach, but not necessarily competent to counsel. They're trained to handle the Bible and the pulpit, but not necessarily to handle people. In most seminaries, and I talked to someone today who said, yeah, when I was in seminary, I got one course in counseling. And then he described the course, and he'd have been better off to have skipped it. <laughs> David Powlison writes, Among those who take scripture seriously, ecclesiastical habits focus almost entirely on the pastor as a public proclaimer, a team leader, and administrator. Skill in the cure of individual souls is optional, and sometimes even discouraged as a waste of time. Okay. I am fully in favor of seminaries and other training institutions exalting the proclamation publicly of God's word is the most important thing. But you can't neglect the private proclamation of the word. And 
Can you imagine sending a pastor out to be the preacher in a church if he'd never once preached a sermon? That'd be utter folly. But how many men are being sent out to pastor churches who have never once cared for an individual sheep in distress? They've never even seen somebody else do it before. They're not going to be ready. So, some of it is the training. Pallison also points out it has to do with a lot of the process of ordination. And again, I'm around, I'm still a Baptist, don't worry, I don't plan to change, but I'm around all these Presbyterians, and you hear about all their ordination exams, and they get examined in the languages and church history and uh, theology and the confession, and those are all good things. But Pallison points out the question, what about the cure of souls? Will the prospective pastor be examined on what he believes and how he practices ministry to individuals? There are many options. Which one will he take? He's not going to be taught. He's not going to be questioned or supervised or disciplined about that choice. I think another reason why pastors choose not to counsel is because counseling is really scary. Uh, pastors feel safe in their study with their books and behind the pulpit where the people generally don't talk back. And this semester, I had a class where, as I described, the, the students who've been in the program for a while are counseling each other with myself, my wife, others critiquing them. And one of the MDiv students said to me, now, this is a lot harder than preaching lab. Because <laughs> in preaching lab, they can walk in with a manuscript and they're in total control of the situation, but they get ready for their counseling lab and the counselee doesn't follow the script. <laughs> he comes up just like in real life with a totally new problem and he resists and uh, that takes some skill. They're unprepared for those tough situations. I had a pastor in our area who is uh, probably in his mid-40s and he came to me and said, I've got this problem going on in my church. I have no idea what to do. I said, we're here to help you. But our help isn't, we just, we're not going to take this person away from you. You come, you bring a lady to help this other lady and we will help you care for her so that we can get out of the picture. I'm also sad to say I've not heard from him since then. Some ministers are unaware of the struggles their people are having. If you live in your study and in your pulpit, you won't realize how messy things are in the church. And again, if you want to know how messy things are, read the report of the reports this morning in terms of all the things they're going to be thinking. This is what the church is. What's the world like? Uh, sometimes these issues are under the surface. I remember the first time in our church over 20 years ago when a couple came to us and there was abuse going on in the marriage. I would have never in a thousand years expected that. Cases of infidelity, cutting, self-injury, pornography, um, mothers losing their temper and being violent with their children. Um, and I even found when I first started pastoral ministry in 1982 in Saudi Arabia, a great shock to me was weeks after I was put in that position, having people call me, people older than my parents, calling and saying, we've got this huge problem, help us. And all I knew, actually I'd read Competent to Counsel, Christian Counselor's Manual, all I knew to do is the Bible has the answers. Heath Lambert describes his first week as a pastor. He said he was in his library full of 
books on theology and commentaries, and then some people wanted to meet with them. Oh, that'd be great. Maybe they want to ask a question about the Trinity or predestination or something like that. But what happens? Here's a couple that's been married 50 years, and they can't stand each other, and they want to get away from each other. And then uh, another woman comes in with her daughter who's been molested, and then a third is a couple with a child that's totally out of control, teenager. Does our training equip people to handle those situations? Some pastors don't do it also because counseling is really draining. It can be discouraging. It can be overwhelming. Uh, sometimes you can, you can exhaust a week's worth of energy in one hour of counseling. I remember sometimes Monday when we did our counseling with IBCD and Escondido, and I would get up on Monday dreading Monday afternoon and evening because I knew I was about to go into the pit and do battle. And it is exhausting. And when your phone rings late at night, and there's an adultery case in the church, or an abuse case in the church, or some other overwhelming situation, and all you can do is say, may God give me strength. And actually, when Paul describes, for this purpose I labor, striving, according to his power. It's labor, and it requires striving. Preaching is relatively easy. No disrespect to Lance's uh, topic. Um, many pastors, for that reason, outsource their counseling. So many of the pastors in Charlotte, in the Reformed churches, just they send them to Christian counseling centers, and I've been, I've, I'm sure all of them intend to help people, but most of them have almost no training in the scriptures. Most of them rely upon years of training in a psychological worldview and methodology which does not understand who man is as a creature of God fallen with a soul. They don't understand redemption is the only hope of mankind for transformation. When they bring in the Bible, it's often a bit of morality, often taken out of context. Pastors must not hand over their sheep to people who may, in some cases, be wolves, and in other cases, be totally unqualified to be taking care of the sheep of God, even for their good intentions. So, counseling is caring for people from the Bible. Many are reluctant. Why must we do it? Why must pastors counsel? Well, what does the word pastor mean? Shepherds. What do shepherds do? They take care of sheep. Agreed. The public ministry of the word is primary. By the way, something you may not know about Jay Adams as the founder of the biblical counseling movement. He actually liked teaching about preaching more than counseling. When I got my doctor of ministry under Dr. Adams, it was a doctor of ministry in preaching in which there was a counseling component. He was more passionate about preaching than counseling. The reason he got into the counseling is nobody else was doing it. And to that I can relate. We should study to show ourselves approved. Workmen who need not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. It takes hours and hours in the study to be prepared to preach. We should not neglect that. We should not let even counseling keep us away from the study of the scriptures and to be faithful in handling the word of God. We are also called to shepherd the flock of God. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God. Paul in Acts 20, shepherd the flock of God. Jesus talks in Luke 15 of 
the good shepherd leaving the 99 to go care for the one lost sheep. And that one lost sheep will wear you out more than the other 99 combined. But both the public ministry and the private ministry, as Paul says in Acts 20, it's the ministry of the word. Paulison writes, Pastor, you are a counselor. Perhaps you don't think of yourself as one. Perhaps even your people don't think of you that way. Perhaps you don't want to be a counselor, but you are a counselor. I love in uh, the recent book by Jeremy Pierre and Deepak Reju, they say, shepherds should smell like sheep. We should be among them in their filthy, dirty, difficult problems. And being among them, we will smell like them. Because we share the love of the great shepherd for his sheep for whom he died. We do love people. I wish I loved people as well as Bruce said I did. (laughs) But we have a Savior who gave up his life for his sheep. And he calls us to walk in his steps. We need to be among them to do that. I've observed two kinds of pastors over the years. There are some pastors who love to be in the study and you can't get them out of the study to be with the people. There are some pastors who love to be with the people and you can't get them away from the people to get into the study. You can evaluate yourself. I would say among Reformed pastors, they're far more the former than the latter. Don't act like you're too busy to care for sheep. A few months ago, we were checking into a hotel. It was supposed to be a pretty nice hotel in the downtown of a city. And there were two clerks there. I was the only customer standing there. And they were carrying on a conversation about their personal lives. And I, in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, patience is not my great strength anyway. But I'm watching them carrying on. And I'm thinking about the next three things I want to do. And I felt like I'm interrupting their private conversation to get them to do their job of checking me in so after a long day of driving I could get some rest. But what response do you give when your sheep call upon you and say, I need you. Um, there was a store in our area 25 years ago when they had, by each cash register, a sign saying, customers are not an interruption to your work, customers are your work. Okay. Sheep are not an interruption to your work. You're a shepherd. Sheep are your work. And that can be hard. Again, if I'm dug in and steady and I think, boy, one more hour and I'm going to figure this whole passage out, and I'm be ready to preach it, and then the phone rings, or somebody comes to the door. My initial gut reaction isn't, oh, great. But God has called us uniquely to care for them. And we have a unique opportunity. The therapists in the world, who, as well-intentioned as they may be, are not really giving the kind of biblical gospel-focused counsel that they should be giving, people in trouble have to go to them. They don't have a relationship with those people yet. It's out of desperation they go see some stranger. Your sheep already know you. They trust you. I hope they know you love them. You're in, God has placed you in an incredible place to be able to help people in need. And how tragic it is when people go to a shepherd and he says, yeah, here's a card for a counseling center down the road which may give them advice that has nothing to do with the gospel. 
God takes our shepherding very seriously. There's probably one passage you never want to hear read at a pastor's conference, and that would be Ezekiel chapter 34, right? No? Sorry. When the Lord says in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. There are pastors in your communities who are passionate about drawing a really big crowd. And their measure of their success in ministry is how many people come. And broken, hurting sheep are not going to add much to their mission that they've set for themselves, their goals, that's going to make them feel like they're a great success. And they may be building on a foundation of wood, hay, and stubble. And God has entrusted to you maybe a little flock. And you'll be just be amazed how many problems that little flock has for such a little flock. But if you're counseling them faithfully, shepherding them faithfully, both publicly and from house to house, in the final day, what you have built will last. When those who outsourced, and one of the difficult things we had in having a counseling ministry in Escondido is we had churches where they had leaders trying to build the big thing. And they would try to outsource their counseling to a biblical counseling center. And you get to the point point, say, if you're not going to come, we're not going to counsel your people. We'll be happy to teach you how to do this. But we aren't your shepherds. We're not their shepherds. It will cost you to be a faithful shepherd. Paul, when he was called, was, he was said, I will show him how much you must suffer for my name's sake. I'll admit, when the phone rings, or even sometimes I get an email, and it's one more case of a couple in a church splitting up, one more case of adultery. Can you talk? Can you help us? Can you meet with us? I want to say no. But shepherds care. And God blesses faithful shepherds. Back to First Peter chapter 5. You know, what is our reward? When Christ, when, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is our hope. Not an easy life, not a crowd this Sunday, but to be faithful. So we've seen that counseling is caring for people, using the Bible in a gospel-centered way. Some pastors are reluctant to counsel. It doesn't fit into their main goals. And yet, you must shepherd if you want to be a pastor. It's the job description. The last two points have to do with the ministry of the Word publicly and privately. How does faithful preaching make you a better counselor? If you paid attention to Lance last night and do what he said, you're going to be a good counselor. Good preaching, like Lloyd-Jones said in the quote I read earlier, it will eliminate some of the need for counseling. Now that's assuming you're preaching the word faithfully and practically. But as the people are instructed in, in sound theology, as the people are taught how to apply the scriptures to themselves... God is going to do great good in their lives through your preaching. 
and he will deal with people in ways you may never know. And that's great. I think it's also important in our preaching to touch upon practical issues that people are really facing so those can be addressed in the public ministry of the word to make those kinds of applications as we're expounding the texts. Good preaching is also going to equip your people not just to solve their own problems but to help one another. And that's huge. Um, Our function as leaders is not to do all the work of ministry as Paul says in Ephesians 4 that he gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Faithfully proclaiming the word of God you're building up leaders. You're doing the 2 Timothy 2-2 thing. And you're equipping them so that they can care for one another. Uh, one of my favorite passages dealing with how counseling should work in the church is in, in Exodus. When Jethro goes to Moses and says, Moses, you're wearing yourself out judging these people. Find some good men. You can instruct them in the ways of God and, and they can care for each other. And so through the preaching of the Word of God and the instruction ministry of the Word of God, you're equipping people to make peace among one another, to help a lady who's depressed, to help do pre-marriage counseling. You can't do this on your own, not even in a small church, and especially in a large one. Preaching and counseling also go together because issues are raised in preaching which will drive people to their shepherds. You will expose problems they may not even have been fully aware of. Lloyd-Jones said, I've often found that the preaching of the gospel brings people to talk to the preacher and gives them opportunity of dealing with them in their particular condition. I think this also has to do some with how you're preaching. Okay, in Jonah chapter 4, remember what Jonah, what does Jonah want? He wants to die. You say to your congregation, Jonah was so overwhelmed he was not doing well in his relationship with God. What do we call it when someone wants to die? It's suicidal. There are probably people here today. There are probably people here right in this room tonight. At some point this week, and thought, I wish I were dead. I want to give you encouragement from what the Lord dealt with in Jonah's case, but I also want to tell you, if that's what's going on in your life right now, and that's the way you feel, we as your shepherds are here for you. And if you're more comfortable talking to a lady, we have ladies who are prepared to talk to you, women. And we, you know, these, you know, these issues come up in the Word of God. Psalm 42. The psalmist is overwhelmed with, like Jonah actually, there's similar language, and you know, the sorrows are coming on like sea billows, and he, he's crying out to God, and he feels like God doesn't hear. And are there some of you who feel like the psalmist? Come to one of us. We'd like to pray with you. I'd like to read the scriptures to you. Sometimes you're just so overwhelmed. You need a brother to come alongside. We're here for you. So as you're identifying with the stories and the the teaching of scripture, invite them to come. And then the the ministry of the word enhances biblical counseling. And this is the most important part of all in that there's no better preparation to do personal ministry than preaching consecutively through the Bible. And something I've been saying for many years, and this is something I'm now saying at RTS, teaching the counseling students, there's an expression we use, how thick is your Bible? 
I don't mean you got a thin line Bible or now you're like you need a giant print Bible. I mean when it comes down to someone comes to you with a problem, how much of the Bible is there that you could I don't even need can you memorize it or quote it. Could you find the passage to help a depressed person, an angry person? Do you how much of scripture is there for you? And you know the best way to thicken your Bible? Detailed study through books of the Bible. Work your way through Romans and Ephesians and Proverbs and Colossians and James and Hebrews and as you're working through those books, they will be yours for the rest of your life. And what again I got to tell you, I missed that since I went to be a professor in July. Just the, the privilege of just working my way through book after book of the scripture, from my case over 30 years of doing that. Nothing has equipped me more to be a counselor than just studying the Bible. And I was a slow learner. I would take 20 hours typically to prepare a sermon. That was 20 hours meditating on one passage. And you do that through the whole book of Romans, the whole book of Ephesians. Public Luke or Mark, that's part of you for the rest of your life. I don't think there's a substitute for it. Jay Adams says one reason counselors do not, who do not preach fail to become as biblical as they might be is they're not required to do exegesis on a regular basis. Most counselors need the enforced discipline of having to prepare sermons every week to keep studying the Bible regularly in an intensive way. Uh, one of the issues I face at Reformed Theological Seminaries, people talk about counseling and studying counseling for a master's degree as people say, well, I'd like to get state licensed. And there are a lot of problems with that in the sense, I mean, I have reasons I don't want to be state licensed. One would be if you become state licensed, you then are under the authority of the licensing agency and the government. Would you like to be licensed to preach by the government? Or by a professional agency that includes all pastors everywhere? I don't think so. So one reason I don't want to be state licensed is because I am a minister of the word as a counselor as much as I am as a preacher. And my, I want to answer to God and God alone under the authority of the elders of his church. Another problem with the state licensure program, and we actually, when people come to us and they say, well, but if I got state licensed, I could get a job. And you know, there are going to be problems. Yeah, but when you get the job and someone comes to you with a problem and your code of ethics says you can't read the Bible or bring the gospel to them, I don't want to do that. But there's another issue. What do you think you need to be well-equipped to study the Bible? And I actually said, draw me a pie, okay? And let's say that pie has three parts. Bible knowledge, applied Bible knowledge to people's problems, and psychology. If you want to be well-equipped to counsel, you've got two years or three years to study full-time. What percentage of your time do you want to spend on each thing? The answer I've often gotten, which makes me really glad, well, like about 50-60% Bible, I'd like 30-40% how to use the Bible to help people, and maybe 10 or 15% how to, you know, what I need to know about psychology. I said, then come here. <laughs> That's what we're offering. If you get into a state licensed program, they're not going to teach you the Bible. They don't have time to teach you the Bible. They've got to spend most of their time teaching you psychology and teaching you all that there is to be state licensed. I would like to know more of that than I do for the job I have. But I'm so thankful I've had the privilege of spending decades studying the Bible, which is by far the best thing to equip you. Being a preacher, preaching expositorily, just like we heard about last night, through books of the Bible, is the best thing you can do if you want to be equipped to counsel. And then my fifth point takes it the other way. Well, how does counseling make you 
a better preacher? And the answer would be that face-to-face involvement with real people, with real problems, is going to keep your feet on the ground. Over the last nearly 30 years, I've listened to a whole lot of sermons by seminary students, some of whom are here. And there are so many sermons I've heard seminary, seminary students preach which could only really be appreciated by other seminary students. And I won't go into detail with that too much. But Jay Adams says, if a pastor spends his, all of his time during the week with his commentary, when he preaches, he's going to sound like a book. And there are some preachers that sound like a book. There are some preachers that sound like they're writing academic papers for other academicians. And the guy that goes to work the next day and he's fixing cars and doing plumbing or programming computers, he feels like, well, that guy's got some level of expertise in that area. I can't even understand. He must be good. But I don't understand what he's saying and I don't see how it relates to me. You see, when you do pastoral work, you begin to understand sheep better. You see what the problems really are you realize that that Puritan commentary you were reading really was good for your own soul. But the folks to whom you're preaching this Sunday have a different world in which they're living with some different problems than the Puritans did. And you're going to need to get to know them. And Jadams actually talks a lot about audience analysis. You, you want to understand your people and the problems they're facing. And nothing, more, nothing will help you more with that than actual counseling. Now, sometimes it can be quite disturbing. One of the most disturbing things is that they come in and they ask a question that you thought was thoroughly answered in the last three sermons you preached and they got no idea what you were talking about. There have also been times when you sit them down and you look at them eye to eye and you have them open up the Bible and you go through that same material again. The one-to-one communication, they finally get it. But you see, what am I saying that's getting through? What am I saying that's not getting through? We've had some comments about millennials. And, and then other people think, aren't you thankful you got some, right? In your church, isn't that a great thing? But if you want to understand how to reach millennial sheep, spend time around millennials. And as you care for people, you don't have to say, I want to counsel. You just spend time with them. My experience has been when you spend time with people and they know that you care about them, they start telling you about their problems, whether you want to hear them or not. And if they respect you as a shepherd, they want to hear what you have to say from the scriptures. Sometimes, again, you need to be careful in terms of application. But you can kind of assume that if two or three people in your congregation are having a problem in this area, struggle with pornography, struggle with being overwhelmed with little kids in the house, which maybe you've not thought about much lately because you have a little kid in the house in 30 years, but you're around those people... There probably, if there are a few of them, there are a lot of them. Now, we have to be careful as not to say it in a way that would embarrass somebody. I actually had one sermon where I, was, I, I made an application and three people thought I was talking about them and them alone. But it's your, your personal ministry. And there's one other aspect of how counseling makes you a better preacher, and that is some of us are men of average gifts. We're not the Kevin DeYoungs and John Pipers and John MacArthur's that thousands of people are going to come to Gospel Coalition. 
to hear. We'll never have that eloquence. Quite frankly, if our people want to hear eloquence, they should read Spurgeon or listen to the Gospel Coalition audios online. But if they've been in your home, you've prayed with them, and you've cared for them, and I've seen it happen, that all of a sudden that next Sunday, they're looking at you. They're tracking with you. They're, they're interacting with you after the sermon about what you said and what it means to them. When they know you love them and you're involved in their lives, it makes you a much better preacher. So, to summarize, um, we are called by God to counsel. Counseling is using the Bible in a gospel-centered way to help people grow to completeness in Christ. It's the personal ministry of the Word that complements the public ministry of the Word. You can't be a shepherd unless you care for sheep. That's what God has called you to do. But if you get the balance right, your preaching will make you a better counselor, your counseling will make you a better preacher, and you will fulfill the call that God has given you. And this is something that you want to involve the entire church in. Counseling is part of what enables us as the church to fulfill the commission Christ has given us. We're making disciples. Sometimes people come for counsel, and they've been in your church for years, and they get converted. It's an amazing thing. I count it a privilege to be a part of a group where there are so many who are committed, faithful pastors. And even if we're not the ones who are famous, not the ones who are outwardly successful, I'm privileged to be among men who are faithful shepherds to the sheep, proclaiming the word both publicly and privately, taking those God has entrusted to you, helping them to grow in conformity to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your word, which is powerful and life-giving. Help us first ourselves to be transformed by your word as we read it and study it, to feed our own souls, to counsel ourselves. Help us as we study your word to faithfully proclaim it publicly and help us as you give opportunity to preach the word from house to house, to bring Christ to people who might not even come to us. Thank you for these brothers who faithfully labor with all the strength they have and the ability you've given them to shepherd your sheep. Bless these ministries. Strengthen our churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.